Well, let's continue this theme by turning in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. And we're going to read verses 1 through 11. I've titled this sermon, Jesus, Our Captain. And so beginning with Matthew chapter 4, beginning in in verse 1. When Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Men shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, Angels came and were ministering to him. The beginning of a new year sometimes marks new resolutions. We resolve to lose weight. We resolve to start a new exercise program. We resolve to quit some bad habit. And often, behind these resolutions lies some kind of regret. That is, some some failure. In a recent essay about memory in the magazine First Things, Wilfred McClay says, memory can be a reservoir of joy or it can be a source of woe, of remorse and regret that will not go away. Steady work for the psychiatric profession. When we think about regret at the beginning of a new year, about things that could have been, we think, wow, I could have gone back If I could have gone back, I could have changed things. The American novelist Kirk Vonnegut said, Of all the words of mice and men, the saddest are it might have been. If only I had not done that stupid thing. If only I had not done that horrible deed. Then my life would be different. And I wouldn't be living right now with regret. Have you ever wished that you could go back and live your life over again? 
That way you could correct those mistakes that you made. Unfortunately, such things only belong in the plot lines of science fiction or time machines or Groundhog Day movie. But what if I told you that this notion of going back and correcting, correcting mistakes is not foreign to Scripture? Here in the text that we read today, as well as some chapters before chapter 4, we find this very thing. Only it's not us who goes back and corrects wrongs. It's Jesus. Today we're going to see that Jesus does for us what we cannot possibly do for ourselves. But before we do that, I want to give you some background to what happens before chapter 4, because it's very important. It's very important to know what's happening in Jesus' life up until this point, because here in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is actually retracing the life of Israel. If you look just a couple of chapters over to chapter 2 and verse 13, we find these words. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Did you know that Jesus' life parallels the life of Moses? We could even say that Jesus is the new Moses. I mean, just think about it. Just as Moses' life was threatened by Pharaoh when he decreed the death of all the Hebrew males, so Jesus' life was threatened when Herod ordered the death of all the children in Bethlehem under the age of two. Just as Moses was forced to leave his place of birth because Pharaoh sought his life, so Jesus had to leave his place of birth because Herod sought his life. And just as Moses returned to his homeland after the death of Pharaoh, so did Jesus return to his homeland after the death of Herod. Of course, there is one big difference between Moses and Jesus. Moses was not perfect. Remember, Moses smote the rock, and God was displeased. As a result, Moses never entered the promised land. On the other hand, notice what the Father says about Jesus when he was baptized. In Matthew 3.17, we find these words. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Have you ever wondered why Jesus had to be baptized? 
Even John wondered. That's why he asks in chapter 3 and verse 14. He says, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Here is John preaching repentance, preaching the coming of the kingdom of God, and he's amazed to see Jesus standing there in line with the other Israelites coming toward him. Why did Jesus, the perfect God-man, have to submit to baptism? Well, Jesus answers this question in chapter 3. We find in verse 15, and Jesus answered, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Why did Jesus have to be baptized? It's to fill, fulfill all righteousness. It's as if Jesus is saying, if I'm going to fulfill all the promises of the Messiah, if I am going to fulfill all the promises concerning righteousness, then I am going to have to identify with the guilty completely. So Jesus identifies with our darkness. He identifies with our guilt. He identifies with our failures. Theologians have a word for this. It's called Jesus' active obedience. He obeyed in your behalf. Now, regarding the theme that we mentioned, that Jesus is retracing the life of Israel, we see that baptism itself typifies the crossing of the Red Sea. And the scriptures even make this connection. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were under the cloud and passed through the sea and were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Do you know what the Old Testament name is for Jesus? It's Joshua. Jesus is not only the new Moses, he's also the new Joshua. And he's leading the people into the new promised land. This is why Jesus is the captain of our soul. Do you see what Matthew is doing here? He's retracing the footsteps of Israel. Jesus is walking in the steps of Israel. First, Jesus comes out of Egypt. Then he passes through the sea. Now, where do you think he's headed? Chapter 4, verse 1 that we just read. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit, where? Into the wilderness. So, before we actually talk about these temptations, we need to understand that there's the wilderness, and then there's Satan, and then there's this title, the Son of God. Now, the wilderness in Judea is a very barren place. 
it's a desolate land. It's 15 miles wide and 35 miles in length, stretching down on the west of Jerusalem all the way down to the Dead Sea. And the sand is yellow there with jagged rocks and contorted strata and warped ridges in all directions. They say that if you talk there, there's a, even a hollow sound. Our text says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And here's the interesting thing about this. Jesus, after his baptism, did not just happen to wander aimlessly into the desert. In the Gospel of Mark, we're told that the Spirit actually drove him into the wilderness. And he was driven into the wilderness for the express purpose of being tested. You might remember that the people of Israel were also in the wilderness to be tested. The Shekinah glory did not lead the people of Israel by the easiest way, but rather by the way of the desert, of the wilderness. And just as Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years, Jesus was in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. And then Satan. This is the first appearance of Satan in the Gospel of Matthew here in the New Testament. But Satan shows up very early in the Bible, all the way over in Genesis, in the garden there. Satan comes to earth with great guile to seduce and to destroy. And that's what he's doing here. And then you'll notice that for the first two temptations, Satan says, if you are the Son of God, we find this in verse 3, and we find it in verse 5. If you are the Son of God. Now, there are many titles for Jesus, but this particular, particular one speaks of his divinity. In fact, in the Apostles' Creed, we emphasize it when we say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. So Satan is actually acknowledging the divinity of Christ here, the second person of the Trinity. He says, if you are the Son of God, if you are the promised Messiah, if you are the image of the invisible God, and then these temptations occur. These temptations actually can be summed up in 1 John 2, 16, where it says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. These are the temptations that we face today. And what's remarkable about these temptations is that these are the temptations that the people of Israel also experienced. 
In the first temptation, Satan says, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, this temptation is one of physical desire, and it parallels the hunger that Jesus was experiencing, and it also parallels the hunger that the Israelites experienced in the desert. You'll remember that the people of Israel had been in the desert only for a short amount of time when they began to grumble and complain. God gave them water from the rock, and he gave them manna from heaven, but yet they still grumbled and complained. We find in Exodus these words, in Exodus 16, verses 2 through 3, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat down by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out in this wilderness to kill us. This whole assembly with hunger. So Israel grumbles and complains. But Jesus does not grumble and complain. He answers Satan by saying, actually quoting Deuteronomy 8.3, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. As was shown here in the children's church, did you know that the way to properly confront evil is by proclaiming the promises of God? And so this is what Jesus does. Now in the second temptation, Matthew says, the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, and Satan quotes from Psalm 91, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now the pinnacle, more than likely, was located on the eastern side of the temple, and it overlooked the Kidron Valley, and where the historian Josephus reports that the drop down to the valley was about 450 feet. Church tradition holds that Simon, the magician, over in Acts chapter 8, actually tried this feat and lost his life and his following all at the same time. This temptation is the temptation of the pride of life. And it parallels the rebellion of Korah in the wilderness. You remember when the agitators rebelled against Moses and the ground opened up and it swallowed the rebellious cohort whole, and then there was a plague that killed 15,000 people. In essence, the rebellion of Korah was caused by the sin of pride, the lifting up of the self over established authority. In mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis calls pride the great sin because it was through pride that the devil 
became the devil. But Jesus does not succumb to pride. He answers Satan, quoting from Deuteronomy 6.16, as it is written, you shall not put the Lord to the test. And then the third temptation, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and he showed him the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And Satan said to him, all these will I give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, this temptation is the desire of the eyes. And it can be understood by Satan putting before Jesus a false inheritance. So besides being unsatisfied with God's physical provision of daily manna and succumbing to pride, this temptation parallels for Israel wanting to return to Egypt and forsaken, forsaking their inheritance. And this is why we find in Exodus chapter 14, these words. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to have served the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. They, you see, they wanted to go back to Egypt. But for the Israelites to have gone back to Egypt would be claiming a false inheritance. Because God made a promise to Abraham concerning their true inheritance. And the promise was about land, but it was more than about land. The promise made to Abraham was that through his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And this was a promise concerning Christ. And this was a promise concerning your redemption. Can you imagine what would have happened if Christ had given in to this temptation. But Christ did not give in. Christ passed this test. He says, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, for you shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you serve. Now, what does this mean for us? Satan offers Jesus the kingdoms of this world on a silver platter. And he says, no. What Jesus gives up, he gains for us. This is why he was able to say right before his ascension, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Matthew shows us that Jesus does for Israel what she could not 
do for herself. We see that how he retraces the events of the Exodus, and he does it in perfect obedience out of Egypt, through the waters, and into the wilderness, passing every test. You see that Jesus is the new Moses. You see that Jesus is the new Joshua. He's the new Israel. But we've really only touched the tip of the iceberg. Jesus is also the new Adam. God put Adam and Eve in the garden, and he made a covenant with them. And they could only fulfill this covenant by being obedient. But they failed. And now we live with the consequences of their sin. But God made a new covenant. And Jesus is the central character of this new covenant. For as Adam was the covenant breaker, Jesus is the covenant keeper. Now, my wife and I sometimes watch these house shows. You've seen some of these house shows. There's a new one called, I Wrecked My House. Maybe you've seen it. These people, they try to fix their house and they mess it all up. They ruin everything. And so somebody has to come in and say, hey, hey, look here, you've really ruined everything. Let us help you, and we will fix it up. And they do. They fix it up for them, and they come back, and they look at their house. And they say, "My, that's wonderful. You've, you've fixed our house. We, we wrecked it, and then you fixed it. Well, that's what Jesus does for us. You say, we've wrecked our house. But he fixes it. That's why Paul says, for if because of one man's trespass, speaking of Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now, Moses was a great man, but he never saw the promised land because of his failures. Israel was God's chosen people, but they failed time and time again. And we have also failed. We, all of us, have succumbed to Satan at one time or another. We've given in to the lust of the flesh. We've been puffed up by pride. We've chased after false gods. And so this is why at the beginning of a new year, we sometimes have regrets. And this is why we carry around with us sometimes wounds that are hard to heal, memories that won't go away. In Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, Frodo is pierced by a Morgul blade. Even after a long time, Frodo endured the pain 
from that wound. And sometimes we are like that. This is why sometimes we wish that we, we could go back and we wish that we could live our lives over and correct our mistakes. But no time machine can remedy our problem. Even if it were possible for you to go back and live just one day over and try to fix things, you would still mess up. And this is our sad condition. We're broken. And all the king's horses and all the king's men cannot put Humpty Dumpty back together again. However, Christ can put it back together. Because he's initiated what I like to call the great reverse. In other words, he's taking it all back. And this is good news. Tolkien gave us the image of the Morgul blade, the unhealing wound. But Tolkien also said this. He said, all things sad are going to come untrue. All things sad are going to come untrue. This is the great reverse. What we have failed to do for ourselves, Jesus has done for us. Through his obedient life, through his sacrificial death, through his glorious resurrection, he has secured for us new life. But wait, it gets better. Not only is Jesus the new Moses, not only is Jesus the new Israel, not only is Jesus the new Joshua, not only is Jesus the new Adam, he is also the new creation. And so this is why Paul is able to say that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage of corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And this is why Christ is able to say, Behold, I am making all things new. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for the promise of the work of your son in his obedience and in his sacrificial death. He has secured from for us all things to your glory. For it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.